to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for joining me for this special look back on the 50th anniversary of the game of the century. If you don't know, it's the classic UH-UCLA game back on January the 20th, 1968 at the Houston Astrodome. Over the last few years on Houston Sports Talk, we've spoken to a few different guests about the game, the atmosphere, and the man behind it all, Cougars head coach and Naismith Hall of Famer, Guy V. Lewis. In this show, you'll hear from UH legend Don Chaney, of course, one of the stars of that game. Houston Post and Chronicle sports writer and editor Mickey Herskowitz, who was in the building covering the festivities. And finally, Chronicle Cougars beat writer Joseph Duarte, who was there when Guy V. made the Hall of Fame. But the first person we'll hear from is Robert Jacobus. He authored the book, Houston Cougars in the 1960s, Death Threats, The Veer Offense, and The Game of the Century. I'll let him set the scene for us. Ivy Lewis did come up with the idea for the Game of the Century. If people don't remember, realize there weren't around then. It was when, uh, on January 20th, 1968, which the 50th anniversary would be coming up this coming January, when uh, number one UCLA, led by Lou Alcindor, we know him as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, They'd won 47 straight games. Uh, they were playing the number two team in the country, you know, University of Houston with Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney. You know, they'd met in the Final Four the year before UCLA had beaten them. But Guy Lewis laid the groundwork two years before when uh, he started putting the word out that he would like to play UCLA. He uh, started thinking like the Astrodome was a possibility because, well, back then, U of H did not have Hoffines Pavilion yet. You know, they were playing their uh, home games at Del Mar Stadium over there off of 290. But he, uh, Lewis thought that if they could get UCLA to come to town with uh, Alcindor and, you know, Mike Warren and Lynn Shackelford and you know, all their high school All-Americans, you know, they could get a good crowd for. It. And so Guy Lewis kept bugging the athletic director, Harry Falk, to, you know, maybe do this thing and all that. And eventually Falk kind of gave in and he talked to the uh, UCLA athletic director, John Wooden finally gave his approval. Uh, Wooden did not like to play games off campus, but he did. Uh, he realized that the game could be good for basketball, you know, get a lot of publicity. And so, uh, you know, they decided that they were going to play January 68 non-conference game. And it was like the perfect storm that came along. You know, when the two teams met, they were undefeated. You had the two best players in college basketball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Elvin Hayes. You had the largest crowd in basketball history up to that point, you know, 52,693 fans. And it was the first nationally televised uh, regular season basketball game in college history. The game came down to the wire, and, and Elvin Hayes had the game of his life, 39 points and 15 rebounds, and he made the two free throws at the end of the game to win the game for U of H. And it laid, it laid the foundation for what we know as the March Madness today because it showed that, Large crowds would come out to watch a basketball game. You know, it's one of the reasons we have a Final Four in these big uh, stadiums now, arenas. You know, it's very significant. It's kind of like what the culmination of uh, Guy Lewis and recruiting black athletes, it's kind of what everything led up to was that moment. And by that time, four of the five U of H starters on that team were African-American. But it was, uh, you know, people I talked to said it was just, you know, the greatest sporting event they'd ever been to. Yeah, a couple of things I, I think that would surprise people that they may not know that you talk about and when I read the book. And again, I, I definitely recommend people go get this book because there's so many really great stories and great information all the way through it. But the floor from the Los Angeles Sports Arena was shipped to the Astrodome. 
So UCLA had somewhat of an advantage over Houston because they'd played three games on the court earlier in the season. That court also turned out to be the same one used when UCLA and Houston played each other in the Final Four later that season. And you also had players talking about, this was great, they were talking about talking about being winded, just running out to the court at the Astrodome because of how much farther it was than the usual court. What else uh, comes to mind from that game of the century, just, just from the atmosphere and stuff that happened during the game that you think surprised you as you were doing the research on this? You mentioned the part about the players getting winded. They set the court up pretty much in the middle of the dome where second base would be. And the teams had to enter those. You remember the dome, they had to enter from center field. I remember Vern Lewis, guy Lewis's son who was playing on the team. You know, he told me that by the time he, they jogged out to the court to warm up, he was already winded. <laughs> and uh, a gentleman for UCLA, when I interviewed him, uh, one of their uh, bench players, Bill Sweek, he said, he told me the same story, basically, you know, people I've talked to, you know, he talked about how the noise in the dome was just deafening. Uh, well, I remember uh, Howie Lorch, the uh, student manager, the one who was Elvin Hayes' roommate, Elvin's freshman year. He said when they opened those center field gates uh, to go out to the court, he said he said he felt like it was the Roman gladiators going out for battle, you know, with 52,000 people there. There was never anything like it before, not even close. I want to say the next largest crowd ever in NCAA history up to that point was like 22,000. So you know, this shattered all the records of attendance and all that. I did interview one gentleman, and uh, they used to sell programs when they used to play the home games over at Del Mar, and they might sell a 1,000 programs you know, for, for uh, like 50 cents each. But then he said when they got to the Dome that night, they had uh, like ten or 15,000 programs to sell. And the guy and this gentleman I interviewed, he said, he said, this is stupid. We're never going to sell that many programs. And he said they sold them out in about an hour because, <laughs> uh, you know, they didn't realize that the crowd was going to be that big. So, like I say, it was just where everything just came together. It's something you could somewhat plan for, but, you know, great events a lot of times aren't really planned. They just kind of come together, you know, with the undefeated teams and the great players and the jam and the dome. You know, I I don't know if we ever see anything like it again. And unfortunately, the Cougars, they they end up getting smashed by UCLA later that season in the semifinal game. Three things jump out as you look back at that game, though. One, the game was pretty much a home game for the Bruins. It was in Los Angeles. We talked about the court, the court situations as a court that, that they had played on. Two, the Cougs were held to their lowest shooting percentage in seven years, which uh, says something about uh, the Cougars, but you got to credit UCLA's defense, of course. Three, they lost one of their key starters right before the NCAA tournament. This, this might be a little bit lost in history, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. His name was George Reynolds. How important was he, and, and what happened with George Reynolds? George uh, Reynolds came along in the 1967-68 year, the year of the game of the century, and they recruited him out of a junior college in California. The name escapes me at the moment. Uh, he's originally from New Jersey, and I tried to track George down to interview him. I thought I had him a couple times, but he's been kind of elusive trying to talk to. But um, you know, he was he was the point guard. From what I've read and you know, I've watched films of the game of the century, he and Don Chaney were the backcourt. And UCLA had a, a great backcourt also with uh, Mike Warren and Lucius Allen. Our two guys, Reynolds and Chaney, could keep up with those two and guard them and things like that. Well, right before the NCAA tournament, turns out there was a controversy over some of uh, George Reynolds' transfer hours from junior college. And he was declared ineligible because he didn't have enough hours, something along those lines. And so he's ineligible for the NCAA tournament. 
Well, Guy Lewis's son, uh, Vern Lewis, stepped into the point guard role, and Vern did a you know Vern did a good job, but defensively he just wasn't there with George Reynolds. So you know that was somewhat of a factor in the Cougars losing. You know they did lose 101 to 69. Some people have admitted that, but from what I've well, from reading uh, John Wooden and talking to people, when UCLA won the rematch game in the Final Four, John Wooden said that was probably the best game that his UCLA teams ever played. You know, it, it, it just lights out. It's just it's just one of those things. UCLA had high praise though for for Reynolds after that after the game of the century and said he. I think he was a guy that might have surprised him a little bit when they played him. Wasn't expecting him to be as good defensively. You know, it's one of those things with Guy V. Everybody talks about the X's and O's with Guy V. And, and I'm glad you, you sort of outlined in the book and, and got people talking about what kind of X's and O's Guy, guy V was. Tell people a little bit about him as, as a strategist. Well, and Guy V was, was an X's and O guy. And, uh, you know, a lot of people through the years thought, guy would just roll the balls out of practice and you know and they would you know just kind of do whatever but uh coach lewis's assistant coach harvey pate you know, he was his assistant for many years he played basketball for hank iba at, at oklahoma state and you know basketball fans know that hank iba was you know huge on defense and things like that and then uh, when don schwerak came along in the late 60s became assistant coach in the 70s and 80s um you know he, he was real big on defense and doing drills and things like that and so, you know, yeah, Guy Lewis sometimes gets, gets a bad rap uh, about not knowing a lot of X's and O's. But like I mentioned earlier, John Wooden got his own press from Guy Lewis, um, you know, after that game in 1961 where the Cougars beat UCLA at the same Houston Coliseum. So, yeah, and hopefully uh, the book helped dispel some of those myths about uh, Guy Lewis not being an X's and O's kind of guy. You just heard from Robert Jacobus. That was part of a much longer conversation I had with Jacobus from this past summer. If you haven't heard that podcast, go back into our archives and take a listen. There was so much in his book about how the University of Houston integrated college sports in the South. Incredibly interesting interview. So much that you might not know. Next up, let's hear from former Houston Rockets coach Don Chaney. Well, I throw that one out there, but of course, Chaney, along with Elvin Hayes, they were both the stars of that 68 Cougars squad and the game of the century. He played all 40 minutes of the game, and I caught up with Cheney right after Guy V. Lewis's memorial service. Really sad a couple of years ago, but we had a chance to reminisce a little bit, and I asked how Guy V. prepared the team for that game. Going into a game like game like that, you know, everybody's very tense and tight. Uh, because everyone knew about UCLA and their record and, and how great they were. And here's a little team, Houston, who's finally reached a point where, you know, they, they got a nice team that, that could compete with a team like that. But Guy Lewis kept his team together. He kept our confidence high. He prepared us 100%. And we weren't that tense. And, and I have to credit him for that because a lot of times with a game that big, you're nervous, or you're a little bit scared. Uh, we went into that game very confident, and I think a lot of it has to do because of him. What did you learn from him as a coach? Uh, you went on to, you know, coaching the NBA, and you were taken from a lot of different guys, I would assume, but I assume you got a lot from Coach Lewis. I, I learned a lot from him, and I told him this once before, especially on the defensive end. I came into the University of Houston as an offensive player. I left there as a defensive player, and I owe that to him. And I think by being a defensive player and uh, going into the NBA, I think that's one of the reasons why I lasted as long as I did because he gave me a very sound foundation defensively. 
and he instilled in me uh, a lot of confidence, you know, in, in terms of uh, what it takes to win, what it takes to compete, and all about teamwork and, and, and team sacrifice. He was one of those coaches who, you know, he wanted to win, and he prepared his player to a, players to a point where they were ready to win. We were in shape, we were mentally prepared, and we were going into games knowing that we were prepared. And that, that, that's what it's all about from the coaching level, is to make sure that your players are prepared. That was coup great Don Chaney, who actually won NBA Coach of the Year with the Houston Rockets, if you don't remember. He also won an NBA championship with the 1974 Boston Celtics. You can hear more from Chaney and another legend from the Cougar days, Greg Cadillac Anderson, in a podcast from a couple of years ago. Next up is Mickey Herskowitz, who covered the game of the century for the Houston Post. Mickey, just a masterful storyteller. And he didn't disappoint us at all. Here's Herskowitz setting the scene for us on that whole day. Of course, it was the biggest crowd in the history of basketball. And I'm not sure if the Harlem Globetrotters ever drew more, but they would have been the only basketball team. And I don't know that we could consider them legitimately a basketball team, but no college, no pro team under no circumstances had ever drawn 65, 66, 67,000 people. So the Astrodome was packed. Before the game, I went to the top row of the upper deck just to get a sense of the perspective of what it was like. And you couldn't see the basketball. It looked like a golf ball from up there. So the people who sat in those upper reaches had to use opera glasses or binoculars. And sitting courtside at the press table, the basketball thumping was so loud, your eardrums got echoes. Al Cinder was not yet Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He had it scratched on his eyeball. It was wearing goggles. So that was sort of unreal, seeing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was then Lou Al Cinder, in goggles, looking like somebody from outer space. And Elwin was so hyped for that game that he sank the two free throws that iced the ball game. The Cougars won it. And when they... UCLA missed the last shot. Elvin dribbled out the clock the last 14, 20 seconds just as a kind of a blowback on all the talk about how skilled Alcindor was. He could even handle the ball. Elvin was determined to dribble the ball to show that he could handle the ball as well. Yeah, and I remember that great scene where he throws the ball up towards the ceiling as the time's running out. And Guy V. Lewis becomes a legend and really he just passed away a few months ago. I just wanted to get you a couple thoughts from you on Guy V because it seems like the Cougars really didn't have a program before Guy V as far as basketball. There really hasn't been much since then. Hopefully that's changing as we speak. But what about Guy V Lewis? What made him such a special guy? Well, first of all, he came from a little town called Ark, Texas. And when he enrolled at the University of Houston, they were just starting their basketball program. I think he played on the first basketball team that the University of Houston had. He told me the first time they, first time they worked out, they played with a basketball that was peeling. The, the actual leather cover was coming off of it. Guy could have been a Hall of Fame college player on that record alone. It was a six foot four inch center for the Cougars, and he routinely would score 40 or more points. I know he had at least a high of 49, maybe more than that. He may have had a 57-point game. Uh, he was a great shooter. He was a terrific rebounder. He carried that over. He went from being a player to an assistant coach. I can't now remember who the head coach was, but he succeeded him and then became the only coach they had or the second coach they had 
for the next 30 years. What people never understood was what a terrific motivator Guy was. He handled every player differently. He knew exactly what kind of motivation they needed, whether they needed a pep talk or a tough love or whether they needed a kick in the bottom. Guy handled everybody differently. He was a terrific X's and O's coach, even though he never got credit for that. But I remember one time he fired up his team so much that they rushed off to the, go to the court for the second half after his halftime speech, and they locked him in the dressing room. And it wasn't until the second half was ready to start that they realized they didn't have their coach with them, so they had to go back and let him out of the locker room. But I knew basketball. One of the amazing things to me was how people talked about how little coaching he did. He'd roll the ball out and let the players play, and... The NBA coaches that had Elvin, for example, always talked about how he had to be handled and how difficult he was. And you never heard him being difficult with Guy V. Lewis. Guy always got the best out of him and all of his players. He was a terrific tactician. So that was Mickey Herskowitz with his memories of Guy V. in the game of the century. I strongly recommend my entire hour conversation with Mickey from a couple of years ago. Just go back into our archive. If you haven't heard heard it, he just gets into everything from the original Colt 45s, the Houston Astros, to the early Oilers, his role in bringing the Rockets to Houston, and his time spent with Mickey Mantle and Nolan Ryan. Definitely worth a listen. Now let's finish up with Chronicle Cougars beat writer Joseph Duarte, who I spoke to right after Guy V's passing. Duarte puts Guy V's career and his whole life in perspective. Here's Joseph on the man with the checkered towel. As college basketball in general, he was an innovator. Uh, he was a pioneer. You know, he was one of the first coaches in the South to integrate and accept the integration in basketball. Uh, he also saw the future and set up that game of the century with UCLA. So right there, and then, of course, being the, the father of the five slamma jamma dynasty and to, and to see him you know, have Elvin Hayes and Clyde Drexler and Hakeem Olajuwon among the top 50 NBA players of all time. Uh, says a lot, but what I'll remember most is, you know, I didn't get to know him as well except for the last few years, but I took a trip down to his his town in Arp, Texas, just outside of Tyler, and Guy V hadn't lived there for 60 years, but the locals still talked about him as if he was one of their own, as if they remembered him. He was the, the kid who always dressed nice, had the only convertible in town, and was a two sometimes three sports stars so uh, when somebody remembers you 60 years after you last lived there I think that says a lot about your legacy as not just a coach but as a person but uh, certainly one of the giants of the game he will be missed talk about the feeling in the program just the fact that he was able to finally get into the hall of fame before he passed away I mean that was a, a huge accomplishment for this program and it was just such a good feeling to, to see that happen because everybody had been waiting for so long for that well i was in springfield the day that he got inducted and to watch him get wheeled down the the street as part of the procession to the uh, the ceremony to see the look on his face he could not speak because of a stroke that happened about a decade before but he didn't have to that day the smile on his face would have gone uh, baseline to baseline and i think that's really where uh you know he waited much too long to get into the Hall of Fame, and many of his players lobbied for him. Some threatened to boycott, like Elvin Hayes. But the fact that he never won a national championship was held against him. But when you put 592 wins, five Final Four appearances, uh, countless conference championships and NCAA tournament 
appearances. Uh, there's no reason Guy V. Lewis uh, should have not been in the Hall of Fame nor waited as long. So I think he got his due uh, that day when he finally got in. You just heard from Joseph Duarte on Guy V. Lewis's legacy. Of course, you keep going back to Coach Lewis when you talk about the magical win in 68 and the game that changed college basketball history. Now, if you're a Coug fan in general, you love your Houston Cougars, I'd strongly recommend our podcast from 2016 with Reed Geddes. Go back into the archive, find that. We look back at Phi Slamma Jamma. Reed was in the fraternity. Phi Slamma Jamma was unreal. So he gives us an extraordinary firsthand account of those days. Elijah Wan, Drexler, the mystery of Benny Anders. We talk all about that stuff. So much fun with Reed Geddes. What a storyteller he is. Hope you enjoyed our look back and retrospective on the 50th anniversary of the game of the century. The final score, Houston Cougars 71, UCLA Bruins behind Kareem and John Wooden 69. On January 20th, 1968, Cougs House was the Astrodome. What a classic. Thanks again for listening, and if you're new to the show, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or the TuneIn app. If you have an Android device, download our free Houston Sports Talk app. You can keep up with this show and my daily Locked On Texans podcast on Twitter and Facebook or by going to HoustonSportsTalk.net or LockedOnTexans.com.